0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Digital Dissects podcast. On this podcast, we talk about all things digital from design and delivery to culture and business goals. My name is Dave and I will be your host for our journey through the digital world. I'll be interviewing and speaking to experts throughout the industry about their knowledge and experience and what they see happening in the near future in regards to future digital trends. I'm going to be asking lots of questions, hopefully being your guide as we pick the brains of industry experts from all around the digital world. Today we have Aaron from IndieSpring who has taken some time out to talk about how we start many of our design processes here at IndieSpring and what we do differently from the normal process of creating user personas. Hi Aaron. Hi Dave.
1: Uh,
0: Do you want to introduce yourself, who you are, what you do here at IndieSpring?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Head of Client Engagement here at IndieSpring and I mean, really, that covers all manner of sins, but means that I sit as a thin layer across pretty much every um, every process that we go through here at Indie Spring and act as the first point of escalation where things maybe don't go quite as well as people are hoping or where there's there's some point of tension during a a, during a project. Um, So, yeah, I'm I'm probably one of the people best placed in the business to talk about a few of our different processes.
0: Excellent. Um, just before we get into the meat of what we want to talk, or what we're going to talk about today, I thought I'd start off with a couple of fun warm-up questions to get us going. No worries. So, uh, what what is your most used app this week?
1: Um, this week, I'd probably same say the same as most weeks, which is um, Sync for Reddit, which is an Android exclusive um, Reddit reader app. Um, I use Reddit quite a bit. Um, basically, just scroll through when I need to kill some time. And I've found that this is a really, really um, smart implementation of a Reddit reader. Um, the actual official Reddit app's kind of slow on Android, and I don't think it, it lives up to the, uh, to the third-party apps that are out there. And I know things like Bacon Reader um, are good on iOS mm-hmm. as well, but Sync is, is the best one that i found on Android so far.
0: I must admit, Reddit is a, a beast and entity that's kind of passed my life by. And sometimes when searching on the internet, you I kind of end up there and I get a bit confused. But I know it's huge and everybody seems to love it. So it's not somewhere I've spent much time. Um, one more question then. Uh, what app has kind of changed your life or the way you do things over the last 12 months?
1: Um, well, I, I suppose there's a couple, really, because like all of us, I suppose the one that's actually changed my life the most has been using the NHS COVID app and, and scanning QR codes whenever I get into places. Um, so the, the app that's had the biggest impact on my day to day routine is probably that one. Um, but in terms of, you know, apps that I've been using um, out of sort of from my own volition, I'd say probably Trading212. Um, I've started using that to trade stocks and shares online. Um, it's been a really interesting process and it's something that, you know, I've, has kind of built its way into my daily routine to check on my stocks, to uh, read up on, on various movements. And and that's been quite an interesting app to use and something totally different to the sort of apps I was using a couple of years ago as well.
0: So were you trading before using the app or was the app kind of the gateway
1: into getting into that kind of world? Yeah. Um, so I was I was interested in trading before using the app, and I was um, involved a little bit in cryptocurrencies, but decided to um, to take the plunge after finding an app um, in in trading two one two that seemed pretty pretty robust, pretty secure, well trusted, and um, I I started out just by putting a few pounds in there each month and and almost. Playing it like a game, I suppose, which I'm sure lots of people who give uh, good financial advice are probably holding their head in their hands right now and saying, please, God, don't do that. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's something I have been using a fair bit.
0: That's, that's cool. That's nice. I always find like, yeah, probably not even once a year, something turns up and changes the way I see things and do things. That's cool. That that's kind of helps you facilitate an interest. Um, Go Trading 212 app, really. Say for that.
1: Absolutely. Um,
0: Anyway, onto the topic. We're here to talk about uh, how we start design processes and our well, our bugbear as a company. So why don't I get us going? Uh, I've done some research on what uh, is considered normal practice for creating user personas. So I'll kind of read that back to you, Aaron. And then you can say, you can agree or disagree with me whether you think that's right. And then also what you see the problems are with that. Does that sound good?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. So when I was Googling it, I did some research. Uh, this is what... Google, the first place I go to for nearly every answer I search uh, says a user persona is a semi-fictional character created to represent different customer types that use a company's products or services. User personas are profiles of imagined individuals that reflect a a business's core customer base. And user personas are intended to give reliable and realistic reflection of how a business could expect a group of people to engage with a product, service, or campaign. Uh, Traditional user personas are created around the board table, with marketers and stakeholders holding uh, long meetings discussing every aspect of who they believe their ideal customers are. Uh, And the value of of this exercise of developing a user persona is to give a point of reference throughout uh, the design and development cycle to help ensure that progression aligns with genuine user needs. Does that sound right to you, Aaron?
1: Yeah, definitely. I'd say that definitely represents the the normal um, sort of user persona process and 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 how you would um, you would sort of display those.
0: Yeah, and, and I've done that right. As, uh, we've done it for ourselves as a company over in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Many I th-
1: especially in the early days of IndieSpring, we we absolutely followed the uh, you know the kind of usual process by rote, as most most young companies do
0: yeah yeah uh, that's good and like I say most people probably still do that is my belief when you speak to people they they understand that process uh, and have followed it but what do you think is wrong with that process then Aaron that's what we're here to discuss today
1: well I, th- I think there's a few things that are wrong with that um, process um, for example the amount of unnecessary information that you get from uh, going through this process so you know if you're Going through the standard process, you'll be finding out about what pets people have, what cars they drive. Um, you're you're sort of coming up with this ultimate average of of your users, and um, frankly, unless you're selling pa- unless you're selling pet food or you're selling cars or your relate your product is related to them in some way, I think that the value there is not all that interesting and not all that uh, not all that value valuable. Um, so that sort of stuff takes time to generate it takes time to discuss especially when you've got lots of people around a boardroom table and i feel like that can be really distracting from your potential users actual motivations i think that's a that's a theme we'll come back to a lot today it's around motivations uh, rather than just describing who that user is you want to describe what that user wants um a couple of other things is that often users have already made their decision before you get a chance to speak to surface level observations. So before you talk to them about their pets, before you talk to them about their cars, their house, um, people have already made their decision um, before that because they make their decisions within fifty milliseconds of seeing something. And finally, users will actually operate under an idealized persona. They don't. They don't necessarily correlate with their actual circumstances in real life so for example I might I might not be the most well-off person in the world but I might aspire to be somebody who drives an m3 bmw and I'm probably going to be more influenced by what I aspire to do than by my current circumstances um, certainly in terms of my motivations anyway
0: that's really interesting. Like, I know when, like, for certain th- activities I do, I-, I got into golf. Like, I don't know, 10, 15, well, 15 years ago now, probably. Mm. But I remember having a, a set of clubs that were perfectly good. They, they got me around the course, and uh, but then, because I got into the sport and I was like, oh, I want to take this further. I then went and spent 600 pounds on a new set of clubs. It made no immediate difference mm-hmm. to my ability to play. It's because I wanted something to feel like I was a better golfer. So I bought what I perceived to be a better set of golf clubs.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You're right. I was of,
0: it was because of what I was working towards rather than and, what and, I actually was.
1: And that's absolutely an aspirational purchase.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it wasn't because I'd outgrown the equipment I had, it's because I wanted to fit the equipment that I then bought. That's mm-hmm. a really interesting point. I'd never thought about it that way. Okay, so you, you've said here that everything links to motivations. So, how do you find what the motivations are that link whatever the product service thing you're selling is and your users?
1: Um, um, so we so we use something here at IndieSpring called the limbic map. Um, so this is slightly different from the way that most people will go around finding out um, their their user personas and their user motivations and. The way that it works, and I, I believe that we're going to link to this anyway after the um, after this talk, you'll be able to access this from wherever you get your podcasts from. Um, but the limit map shows a variety of different motivators um, in sort of an oval uh, shape. And at, across there, there are things like extravagance, um, impulsiveness, tradition, quality, lots of different motivators, and, and they're all set out um, in in a way that was decided upon by uh, a group called the Nymphenberg Group. So they're a university-supported marketing group uh, based out of Germany, and um, this is all based on sort of sound psychological research. Um, what we what we do is we then use uh, three different areas, uh, three different key areas that you can aim for. So uh, they are stimulant, dominant, uh, dominance, and balance. Now, uh, stimulant, um, you'll see that all of the... Um, emotions that are around there are things like creativity, curiosity, uh, fun, pleasure, humor, um, all in that stimulant area. Then you've got uh, dominance, which things like order and discipline, but anything around attaining um, sort of, you know, a position of power or um, or status, uh, the, all of those words sit around dominance. And balance tends to be around sort of security related terms. So um, home, loyalty, friendship, anything that's really around um, that feeling of security. Um, so you've got these three separate points um, which all have these motivators sort of sitting around them and and we start plotting against these motivators. Um, and it, one thing to remember is it's really fine to start with assumption at this point as well. Um, you know, it's gonna feel very strange because it almost feels a bit backwards compared to the traditional mo- model of user personas. Um, to start with assumption, um, traditionally you would try and create your personas and then fit to that model. In this case, you're finding the motivators based on your product and then you're fitting your users to it because they're aspiring to that.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think that's it, it, it does feel the wrong way around from the way I've always done it in the past but when we were doing it for ourselves. But I suppose like you're saying about starting with um, assumptions, we make assumptions all the time on what we believe is right because of what the trends you're seeing. Um, so I don't think the assumptions is too much of a concern. Um, have you got any like examples you could talk to or talk about that kind of could kind of help people visualize like what the difference is between those three main motivator groups you were talking about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We've got um, so we've got an example that we've used before. We do some training courses on this um, and and help to inform some of our existing clients and um, people out in the space as to how this works. And and one of the examples that we generally use on that is um, the idea of Chanel and Patagonia. So um, Patagonia, uh, obviously, a well-known clothing brand. Um, they make uh, sort of I suppose adventure lifestyle uh, clothing. So you know, if you're going out hiking or if you're going out doing um adventure sports then um you would go to patagonia and and they very much sit um somewhere between stimulant and balance um, so you can plot out um on the limbic map and, and you'll find that they actually you know they cover a fair swathe of the map um but very much skewed towards stimulant and balance and um to take another clothing brand as an example um the other one that we use in this training um chanel tend to well they don't tend to they they skew very strongly towards dominance so it's all about status and you know that that is reflected in the way that they market as well so patagonia um they market towards balance by um talking about the quality of uh, of their products i mean quality is obviously important if if your life or your health is dependent on it um, but they also speak to that stimulant side of things as well. So they're talking about adventure, they're talking about being free, going out, seeing the world. Whereas Chanel don't really need to do that. They they have a very confident brand um, based around you know minimalism in the in terms of the surrounding brand and allowing their clothing to speak for itself. And you know that that requires real confidence. Um, you'll find similar when you look at things like Rolex. You'll find the same when you look at. Um, you know uh, prestige car companies where they kind of they don't they don't feel the need apple is a great example of this um where they don't feel the need to bog themselves down with lots of terminology they they're confident enough that they can just say aspire to this it's amazing um and and it'll make you look amazing
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense as someone that's shocked in a lot more of the uh Patagonia space i.e outdoor technical clothing i must admit i've never done anything as cool as the pictures on their websites are but i'd love to one day right and that's, yeah again, absolutely and again that's
1: that is so aspirational so um for you there's the there's the the aspiration towards um that stimulant um side of things so the aspiration to be out uh on top of a mountain or in a desert and and doing something like that And obviously we've known each other for a few years, so I know that's something you would aspire to. Um, (laughs) But there's plenty of other people who would aspire to that Chanel um, sort of status and dominance and showing, you know, I'm I'm the person with all the money, I'm the person with all the power um, through their clothing.
0: Yeah, I I suppose we keep coming back to it: this aspirational motivation. And I think that helps me understand that I can see how a lot of the information that we gather in the traditional user persona Mm. meetings go straight out of the window when someone starts operating on where they want to be like yeah, exactly. right i don't go to all the places where the clothes are shown in their pictures but that's where i'd love to be so i, I go and buy it and work my way up towards that in my own
1: exactly another then, another good example of this is um if you look at the uh, vw group they they've got a couple of different brands under volkswagen um so they've got uh, obviously volkswagen but they've also got skoda and uh seat are part of the same group and if you look at, say, the Volkswagen Polo, for example, um, versus the Skoda Fabia, they're both the same car, effectively. They are built on the same chassis. They use the same engines. They are the same car other than, you know, trim level, I suppose. Um, but the marketing is very different. So the VW marketing is more towards stimulant. The Polo is a fun car to go out and drive. It's, it's advertised to um, people in that way. Whereas look at the Skoda, it's mostly about balance. It's good value for money it's um it's it's going to be reliable it's going to last a long time so they've managed to hit two separate portions of the limbic map by splitting into two sub-brands in in their case actually buying a second brand and using that to hit a particular portion that may not have been as well served and that's despite it effectively being exactly the same product yeah
0: that's yeah that's really interesting isn't it like you can see how the same thing just Spoke about differently or shown in a different way uh, speaks to a completely different group of people. Um, trying to bring it back to some like tangible advice, then like on that specific point, if you've got these groups, let's say you had a, you're bringing a new product to market, doesn't really matter what it is. Would you recommend going and looking at any competitors in the market and seeing if there were like gaps on the LingBit Mac to say okay we could hit there, or would you kind of stick to saying oh, this is where we're going to be and even if that's competitive. We're going to push into that space because we know that's what we're trying to do.
1: I, I mean, I think that really depends on on your business. And obviously, um, you know, it, it's entirely up to you whether you think that you've got something which is going to be a little bit more niche, despite the fact that you're sitting in the same area on the limbic map or whether you decide, actually, you know, if I'm competing against McDonald's and they're, they're fulfilling um, this particular part of the limbic map, I, I want to differentiate myself by going for something that's completely different. Um, so I think it, it really depends on on your own um, product and your own sort of uh, risk tolerance in terms of going into something that may be an overpopulated area and, and trying to serve that same motivation. Um, but it, you know for something like food like a McDonald's, you know people need to eat that motivation is incredibly strong, and people aren't going to eat McDonald's every day of the week. So, you know, there's there's different ways to approach it. But I, I think in general, if you know that there's going to be um, a, a heavy hitter, a big player in that area of the limbic map, then I don't think it's a problem to go, you know what, I'm going to aim for something slightly different. I'm going to go for something that they're not hitting in their marketing.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, when there's already such an established giant in the space. Yeah. But I suppose, yeah, if you if you're in a more niche market, you're probably not as worried about the competition. Um, So therefore, you can stick to your guns a little bit more on what you believe the motivation of the product is.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, Okay, so we've talked about the map and people plotting themselves. You did mention that Patagonia actually sits on two of those three that you mentioned. It's not just the one. Um, What advice would you give to people that, like, when they come to do this exercise, uh, either struggle to find themselves on the map or just find that they could, they can justify that they could put themselves anywhere, depending on the language they choose to use. I they've not honed it down yet.
1: Yeah, I think if if you're struggling to plot out on the limbic map, it's it's probably a case of of letting go a little and just and just going with what feels right and feels natural for your brand. And sometimes those things won't naturally sit in a particular corner of the limbic map, and and you've just got to try and sort of build it up as best you can from there. But um, if you are sitting across a couple of areas, um, there's there's a few different ways that you can approach it. But I think the most powerful one that we tend to use is multivariate testing. Um, so for anybody that has worked in conversion rate optimization and so on, multivariate testing is going to be super familiar. Um, and it's just a case of comparing two, two things against each other and seeing which one performs best. Um, now, because you're... Um, because you've managed to assign yourself to a couple of different areas on the limbic map, then you can actually have design decisions and language decisions um, for each test which align with those specific motivators. So in the case of Patagonia, I would expect that they have had um, some testing around going for a more um, sort of balance um, focused route and testing as well for a more stimulant focused route. And, and possibly are serving to, differently to different people. So it's, it's totally possible that I could know from your browsing history, or I could have a pretty good guess from your browsing history, uh, what age you are and um, what your interests are, and go, well, we know this guy's more interested by the stimulant side of things. Um, so to serve slightly different content um, in order to focus on that. Um, but yeah, it's... It's totally fine to use multivariate testing. It's super powerful when you do it, and the idea is that by performing this testing, you're going to validate your thinking um, from the previous step. So, you've you've made some assumptions, but by performing this testing, you can validate that. So, you could even try and perform some testing across all three of the key areas, and you know it might turn out that you're completely wrong, and that's fine. You're going from this assumptive start but well, I think you should be focusing more of your energies on the area that uh, that you think is right.
0: Yeah, that's it. it's, it's great. Uh, I, I've obviously, we've been up in the industry a long time now, like A-B testing and multivariate testing, I always kind of had a problem with because it seemed to be guesswork some of the time. And I know loads of people will be arguing that it's not guesswork, it's based on data. And I believe it is based on data, the choices that you then make. Yeah. But sometimes you're just having to have a good feeling. I think it's really nice to be able to I, tie it back to a, a decision you made early on. Absolutely, right I, wrong,
1: right? I think we. I think we've all been in a meeting at some point where somebody has said, "Let's try changing this um, this CTA, this call to action, from red to green and see what happens." And and that sort of thing feels like guesswork, whereas this, where it's like, um, right, let's let's focus our language around sociability or trust and see if that and and because that's something we've identified as likely. To be a motivator, and see if that has a positive uptick, or see if you know creativity and fun and extravagance. Let's let's see if they are more likely to resonate with our likely users. So it feels less like guesswork; it feels more like targeted.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, how much do you think this? Uh, a, a more hypothetical question for you, Aaron. How how much do you think this personalization and targeting in marketing and advertising and usage of products is going to affect us going forwards? Um, it's quite hard to see in isolation isn't it because you see what you get
1: yeah absolutely. i wonder how
0: much you think is going on behind the scenes that you might not know about
1: I, I think most people that use major brands you know if you're using something like reddit or you're using something like you know the coca-cola website or um you know even facebook the amount of personalization that's going on there is huge and we are all affected right now by hyper personalization um and and you know, our purchasing decisions are being affected by it. our political decisions are being affected by it to get, you know, to go on to the grander scope of things. And, you know, it, it really isn't that difficult based on your browsing history, your comment history on social media. Um, it really isn't that difficult to figure out if you're somebody who's going to be easily swayed towards a product or a choice and, and to sort of feed your motivations to push you in a certain direction.
0: Yeah. And I, on a much more mundane level, I know it does happen. So I bought, uh, pick and mix that got delivered to my house mm-hmm. rather than me going to a shop to get pick and mix and then four other pick and mix brands turned up in my advertising and I'm like oh you've caught on done that I'm interested in this. <laughs>
1: you've caught um, on that I like sweets.
0: <laughs> yeah basically I always find it funny. I, my major frustration is sometimes they don't know you've made the purchase yeah. uh, I think that's the next thing for me like when Amazon tries to sell you something you've just bought for example yeah. and you're like you should not know I've bought it that's like my pet peeve with this kind of clever
1: marketing that's going on i i I bought a vacuum cleaner recently and all i've seen is vacuum cleaner ads ever since and i I feel like that is the most stupid thing possible i've just bought a vacuum cleaner this is a this is a one-off purchase i'm not going to buy more vacuum cleaners i'm not starting (laughs) i'm not starting up a a secret cleaning company um (laughs) like yeah it just it just seems crazy to me that that's something that hasn't been solved by the big guys yet and and you would expect amazon to be so much better at it yeah
0: yeah uh well thanks for taking some time out today aaron to kind of talk about that process that we've got um i, I must admit like from where I, we were doing it three or four years ago and me being in charge i think listening to you guys talk about it now is so interesting and it makes it much more real if that makes sense it's quite a large term but like the guesswork seems to be removed a bit more because you've got a map and it's plotted and it doesn't matter if it's wrong but you know why it was wrong i find that really interesting
1: yeah absolutely and this is this is a a very small part really of a much larger process that we run um with all of the new applications that we start working with or when we take on an older application and um obviously we have we have to work on on that and and decide the roadmap. this is this is sort of the first stage of a, a larger process so um, hopefully it's something that we'll be able to discuss in more detail as we go down the line. Cause I, I think there's, there's plenty there, um, for us to discuss. And I'm sure that the people, um, listening to the podcast or watching it on YouTube are going to get loads of value from those stages as well.
0: Oh, great. Yeah. That, uh, uh, you've committed yourself now. I'm going <laughs> to have to steal you for a couple more sessions. I time. might be committing
1: what? someone else on the team. We'll see.
0: <laughs> well, you just point them in my direction and that'll, that'll be fine. Awesome. Um, but yeah, thanks again for your time today, Aaron. I really appreciate it. I hope everyone listening uh, got something out of it uh, and that we can see you on the next podcast.
1: Excellent, no problem at all. Cheers.
0: Thanks, bye. Thanks for listening or watching if you're on YouTube to this first episode of the Digital Dissects Podcast. Next time we have Rob Sambach, the Managing Director of IndieSpring, who's going to talk to us about the sustainability of flexible working. Rob has built IndieSpring with flexible working as a core policy for the last 10 years and he's going to share what he has learned about running a business with flexible working and how to balance this while keeping a strong culture within your team. Please follow us to keep updated when new episodes are released and all the episodes will be available on YouTube and to wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, thank you and see you soon.